Reading this morning from uh, Acts chapter 15. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversation of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Paul and Barnabas as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they had finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the word of the prophets agree, just as it is written. We jump to verse 19. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read, uh, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. You know, we've uh, all been about advancing the gospel uh, in our teaching really from the beginning of the year. And we're taking our time going through the book of Acts because it's really important for us as a little church, um, starting off on our journey, uh, Foundation Church, to, to really see what it is that made the early church tick. Why is it they did what they did? And that's, we, we don't have to go any further than the book of Acts to give us this sort of step-by-step uh, movement of the gospel. And that's why the teaching series is called Advancing the Gospel, uh, because that's what we see here. Um, advancing the gospel, just so you know, is not just simply passing the message on as if we are somehow just sort of uh, unchanged messengers, you know. Um, uh, it's not just that. Otherwise, we could just go around and simply put leaflets through people's doors and say, right, that's it, we've done it, we've advanced the gospel, and then we could just chill out. That's not what God requires of us. That's not what we see in the book of Acts because advancing the gospel isn't just simply passing it on the message. It is that, but it is embodying the proclamation of the message. It is, it is owning it. It is, it is allowing it to, to get into us, to our hearts and our minds and, 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 and our lives and the way we do life. And, and, and with that, we speak the gospel, but we also live out the truths of the gospel. Uh, because, let's just be clear here, if you have received the good news of Jesus, if you have received Jesus as, as your saviour, if you come to faith in him, then you will be transformed. You will be transformed. If you have not been transformed, if your life is not discernibly different with Jesus on board, you haven't understood him. 
You haven't got him. And so we want to be a church that is filled with people who not only understand about Jesus, but he has transformed us deeply and radically, affecting everything that we do, who we hang out with, where we work, what we do with our money. Jesus has got a claim on all that. And so we see that here, okay? Advancing the gospel is not just simply passing it out. But as we advance, and this is important for us as a church, this is why we're really zoning in on this today, the further out we go, the further out we go with the gospel reach, the more diversity we will see uh, in our church. And by diversity, I mean different types of people, different types of people that are different to you. We'll see more difference uh, the more we go out, the more we understand, reflect, and transform by the gospel, the more radical we'll become, the more daring we will be, the further afield we'll go, the more jumps we will make outside of our comfort zone in order to reach people with Jesus. And so there is a valuable lesson just tied up in this scripture here today that we're going to look at just now. Um, what do we do? This is the question for us as a church. What do we do when uh, someone comes to our church who is different to us? Uh, what do they have to do in order to receive this grace that we've just been singing about and talking about and praying about? What do, what do, what do, we, what do we require for someone to receive the grace of God and be saved? Uh, in other words, how do we respond to people different to us, whether a different culture, different nationality, different politics? How do we respond to them when they come to faith? So we're going to think about that today, and that's really what Acts 15 is, is setting up this question for us. So we're going to think under three headings about this. Um, we're going to think, number one, the problem of the gospel of grace. Number two, we're going to think about the nature of the gospel of grace. And number three, the application of the gospel of grace. The problem, the nature, and the application of the gospel of grace. Because it is a problem. It is trouble. It is not always good news for everybody all the time. So what is the problem with the gospel of grace we see here in this text? Uh, as we've been thinking a few months ago, uh, the gospel has been making great progress. More and more people in the ancient Near East are hearing about Jesus in the book of Acts. It's awesome. There is, there is joy among the people uh, as cities sort of turn to Christ by faith. There is hardship for those who accept Christ into their lives. Uh, there is persecution. There are signs and wonders. There are people being healed. Um, it's just an amazing time. But now we get to this sort of roadblock in the progress of the advance of the gospel, this threat to the early enterprise. Uh, and in fact, the story sort of pauses for a moment. The narrative flow through the book of Acts stops right here when the gospel message comes under close scrutiny. Have we really understood the gospel? And so it's necessary for the breaks to go on, the church to get together and talk about the gospel to make sure that we are clear about what it means. And that's what's going on in Acts chapter 15. The story is this, uh, in Antioch, uh, way up on the sort of uh, the, the current sort of uh, Turkish-Syrian border, the ancient city of Antioch, um, home church of Paul and Barnabas. Antioch is the place where uh, the, the base church of all their missionary operations, Paul and Barnabas, are sent from Antioch. They're resourced by Antioch. Antioch is a powerful, awesome, exciting church to be in, but there is a problem that arises at Antioch, and it's expressed in verse 1 of your text. It says this, Some people uh, came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. This is the problem. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And in verse 5, members of the same group of teaching teachers said this, It is necessary to circumcise them, that is, outsiders, and order them to keep the law of Moses. This is the problem. In other words, there were a group of people in Antioch in those early days that said, you've got to become like us before you can 
come to Christ. You've got to become like us Jews in order to come to Christ, to receive him. Let's, let's, let's uh, just set this in a bit of context, first of all, before we sort of uh, pick it apart. The Christian message grew out of Judaism. Jesus is the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. He is the fulfillment of the Hebrew scriptures. He is the one uh, who brings the kingdom of God, God's rule and God's reign. Uh, uh, and this was primarily a deal, a covenant, a promise that God made with the children of Israel. All right, the Jews. And in the Old Testament, before Jesus actually turned up in the flesh, in the Old Testament, non-Jews, Gentiles, that is, could actually come in to you know, uh, that promise. They could actually enter into the Jewish faith, so to speak. They could enter that religion, um, but only by accepting Jewish law and Jewish customs. If, uh, if a Gentile, a non-Jew, wanted to come into that Jewish faith, uh, before Christ came along, uh, he or she would have to be baptized. If he was a male, he had to be circumcised. He had to take upon himself the law or herself the law, the, the dietary food laws, the worship procedures, the sacrificial system, all of that. That's what happened before Jesus turned up, before the Messiah appeared on the scene. And so now we have in Antioch this certain strain or this brand of Judaism, Jewish Christians, that were saying outsiders, Gentiles, must become Jewish before they can come become Christians. You've got to become like us before you can come to Christ. They're saying it's no different to the old days. Yes, Jesus is now here. Yes, you can come to him by faith, but you've also got to take on Jewish laws, Jewish customs. You've got to become Jewish before you become Christian. You've got to jump through these hoops before you receive salvation. Problem with the gospel of grace. And this is the problem, right? It's not the gospel. That is not the gospel. That is not good news. That is not what the apostles have been preaching since the day of Pentecost. That is not what the first Christian martyr Stephen died for. That is not why the church was being persecuted. That's why we read in verse 2 that, that Paul and Barnabas, it says, had no small dissension and debate with them, which is just a, a long-winded way of saying they hit the roof. They argued until they were blue in the face. This is not the gospel, and I will lay down my life to prove it to you. As far as they saw it, this group of teachers, uh, Judaistic teachers, were undermining the gospel of grace and they were trying to replace it with something else by adding stuff to it. To this group of teachers who said you've got to become Jewish before you become Christian, to them, there was something more important or more controlling in their lives than the gospel of grace. It seems to be that they placed their religion or their culture above the grace of God in the gospel. They considered the gospel of grace to be a threat to their religion. Until now, the apostles and the churches have been saying, turn to Christ, put your faith in him, receive forgiveness, come and receive life everlasting. Hundreds and thousands of people have been doing that through the book of Acts. But here, for the first time, this new element crept in. You've got to become Jewish before you become Christian. It's not the gospel. These people are trying to preach religion. They're trying to preach performance. They're trying to pre preach behavior modification. And folks, none of that is the gospel of grace. It's a problem. And we ask ourselves, well, how does this apply to us today? Is this any, can we get anything from this text as, a, as 21st century Christians? And of course it is kind of different for us today, right? We're not primarily uh, Jewish people here sitting, hearing about the Jewish Messiah. We're, we're all, by and large, Gentiles, non-Jews. 
And yet the spirit that we see in Acts chapter 15 does manifest itself in, in, in different ways. And we have to be aware of that. We're advancing the gospel as, as a church. That's what we're about. We want to share Christ as a church. We want to be a church that has open doors for outsiders to come on in. We're gospel-centered, spirit-empowered, community on mission. That's what we're about. But think for a moment with me. Just think for a moment. There's, I don't know, 20 or so, maybe 25 when the kids are in, uh, of us here, maybe even 30 today. Um, imagine, though, if this place was full. Imagine if we were so full, we had to move into the main hall over there because we don't have enough space here. And that sounds cool, right? That's awesome. That's what we want. That's what we're praying for. Imagine if our church over the next six months filled up with an influx of people from our community, from all walks of life. Come in. People who think differently to you, people who behave differently to you, people who believe differently to you. They all come in. If that happens, and we're praying it does, but if that happens, it will really challenge your understanding, my understanding of the grace of God. Because here's the problem that, that many contemporary churches will face. We don't think we have our own unique subculture, our own little set of beliefs and values about how we as evangelical believers in Jesus, how we do life and what we believe about and what we think about. I'm not talking here, folks, about the doctrines, the, the gospel beliefs that we hold dear. I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking about the wrapping. I'm talking about the, the packaging. We, we, we think as evangelical Christians that we're just preaching the gospel. That's all we're doing. But actually, we're often blind to the packaging. We're blind to our own little subculture. Even just a quick glance around the room will reveal. Um, let's just be very, very generalist. I, I know most of you. I know your backgrounds. I know where you're from and all that kind of thing. We're predominantly, let's just face it, on average, we're predominantly middle class. Similar age group, similar stage of life. I bet you probably have similar interests, share similar, maybe even ethics and politics, perhaps. But if our church suddenly fills up an influx of people from our local community who don't think and feel and believe and look like you, who don't share these common things, this common background, we may unwittingly, if we are not aware, we may unwittingly, as a church, say to those outside, in order to become a Christian, you have to become like us first. You have to start looking like us, sounding like us, dressing like us, behaving like us, and then you can find acceptance here. Then you can come to Christ. Then he can be your saviour. If we're not careful, that's what we'll end up doing. If we're not aware and armed and equipped. For example, let's just say, this is being very, very generalistic. Let's say you reach out to a, a Catholic friend who happens also to be uh, in his or her politics left-leaning and a Republican by you know, political conviction. And you want to bring that person to church and, and, and they express interest in the faith and that's awesome. They want to get to know Jesus. We have to be careful that we don't also somehow or other by our values and beliefs and what we say and what we don't say, suggest to them that you have to swap flags in order to come to Christ. You have to become a unionist and a, and a conservative before you come to Christ. That may change, that may not change, who knows? But we have to be careful that we're not saying that silently or not so silently for people who want to come to Christ from outside of our little bubble. Let's just say, for example, another example, um, you, one of your friends is a vegan. And uh, you want your vegan friend to come along to church and, and, and again, she starts, um, you know, expressing interest in Jesus, wants to, wants to meet Jesus, wants to come to faith in him. Uh, do, we, do we say to that person, you have to stop being a vegan and start eating meat before you can come to faith in Christ? 
maybe a silly example, but it's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Do you have to stop smoking cigarettes before you come to Christ? Do you have to stop playing the lottery before you come to Christ? Do you have to start eating quiche before you come to Christ? Because that is a requirement of all evangelical Christians to eat quiche. No quiche, no Christ. The point is this, folks. You can maybe come up with examples or maybe you've experienced this yourself um, coming from outside of church in, in, into it. The point is this. If we put anything in the way of Jesus, anything in front of him, anything that we say either actively or passively, silently or openly, that there is more important stuff than Jesus, then it's wrong. It works against the advance of the gospel. If we put stepping stones in front of people and say, you've got to step across these things here before you come to Christ, it is wrong. Paul, in, in, in Galatians 2, writes this, uh, addressing this issue. He says, such conduct is not in step with the truth of the gospel. He's effectively saying, you haven't understood the gospel if you're putting stuff in front of people for them to jump through before they come to Christ. You haven't understood it. And this is a problem, isn't it? Because many of us within the evangelical church in Northern Ireland especially, hold many practices and beliefs so dearly that we insist upon them more than we insist upon the gospel. We get comfort from our practices and our values. We, we, we may not even realize that's what we're doing. But as we're seeing here, the danger is it knocks us off course. And as a church that is supposed to be centered around the gospel, we'll end up wandering. So you can see here in the text, the problem of the gospel of grace but let's get down to the nitty-gritty. What is the gospel of grace? What is it? What is the nature of the gospel of grace? And we see that as they come together. Um, the question, I suppose, under the question is, how do we envelop all these outsiders, all these non-religious you know, people, how do we bring them all into the church without compromising the gospel? How do we do that? That's the thing that drove this entire conversation here. And so let's see how they worked it out. By the way, this is, a, this is like a sidebar thing, right? This is a side issue. We've been talking a lot as a church about what it means to be spirit-empowered. We're a spirit-empowered church. We get that from the book of Acts. And we see, um, as we've been going through the book of Acts, spirit-empowered means signs and wonders. Uh, it means words of knowledge. It means prophecy. It means healings. It means all this stuff. But here, the spirit-empowered church, what happens? They get together. They talk they dialogue, they study, they debate. There's a gathering of religious leaders, their minds together. And quite often this phrase comes up in the whole chapter. Uh, it seemed good to us. It seemed good to us. It seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit. So to be a spirit-empowered church is, means many things, wonderful things. But it's not always the spectacular. It might be that, but sometimes it's the study. It's the getting together, it's the debating and dialoguing. I just want to throw that in there. Sidebar finished. Okay, so uh, the nature of the gospel of grace, we, we've got to nail down on this, said the church. Antioch sends its delegation in verses 2 and 3. Uh, Paul and Barnabas are sent down to Jerusalem uh, with this question. And it says in verse 6, this whole council of elders and apostles, you know, the leaders of the, the, the early church were gathered together to work through this question, this issue. The whole church. And so Peter stands up and he gives testimony and then followed by Paul and Barnabas talking about their work with, with Gentiles and how God is, is revealing himself and working through them. That's amazing. And then James, the brother of Jesus, not James the apostle, he's dead by now. James, the brother of Jesus, who wrote the book of James, most probably. Um, he sort of gives a summary statement at the end. He seems to be the guy who gives the, the casting vote, the chairman. Anyway, 
Um, we're going to zone in on Peter's words here because that really does form the, the core of the argument here. Peter gets up and gives this testimony. And what he does in verses 7 through to 11 is he recounts the time when the first Gentiles, the first non-Jews, came into the church. Uh, I don't know if you remember a few months ago, we went through Acts chapter 10 uh, and uh, Peter had this amazing vision of all these unclean animals and clean, being let down from heaven. And God says to Peter, get up, kill and eat. And Peter says, no, no, I can't do that. And then off he went. Eventually, anyway, God called him through this vision to go to, uh, to Cornelius, who was a Gentile. And his whole family were gathered there. And, and Peter preached the word of God. He preached the gospel. And the Holy Spirit, said, fell upon uh, that, that household. Everybody started speaking in tongues. They started proclaiming uh, the, the, the wonders of God, worshipping him, eruption of praise and glory. They were baptized. And so Peter is, is retelling this story. And he says to this council in Acts chapter 15, don't forget, folks. Don't forget that God brought these people in already. In fact, let's look a little more. Verse 7, uh, Peter says, God made a choice already that the Gentiles, non-Jews, should hear the gospel and believe. And that's exactly what they did, he said. We know they believed, we know they believed sincerely because God bore witness to what was going on. He gave them the Holy Spirit, listen to this, just as he did for us. And in verse 9, this is important. He made, this God made no distinction between us, that is, Jewish Christians, and them, Gentile Christians. He made no distinction. He has cleansed their heart, in verse 9, by faith. And here is the headline. Here is the, 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 the knockout phrase in verse 11. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Just as they will. The grace of of the Lord Jesus. This is the gospel, folks. This is grace. This is immense. Peter says, we can't even live under our own Jewish laws, us Jews, let alone the Gentiles. Why, why put it on them? We failed. Why should, the, why should we get them to try and fail as well? We'll be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus and nothing else. Think for a moment. Again, over the last few uh, weeks and months, as we've been going through this series, we've been thinking about and being excited by this radical uh, community that God is building called the church, uh, community on mission. We've been excited by it. I, I've been excited by it. I hope you have been too. Grasped by what God has done and what he can do and wants to do for every generation until Jesus comes again. And that's awesome, and that includes us, and, and, and we're stirred and excited, and we want to be a part of that. We want to give our time and our, our money and our, you know, our, our giftings to see that through. But, and here's the but, we can get excited about the, the big vision, right? The big pattern, the big hope for the future. We can get real excited about that, and that's good. But, let's just drill this down a little more personally. There is usually one type of person or one group of people that you would struggle to see in your church? Let's just be honest. There would usually be at least one person, an individual, or one type of people who you would really struggle to see in your church, if you're honest with yourself. Yay, gospel, yay, advancing. But just not them, not him, not her. Growth is fine, as long as everyone is like me. As long as they're into the same stuff as me. That's where I find my comforts, as long as they like their craft coffee, as long as they like their nice food, nice music, 
If they're like me, then I'm cool with that. But if they're not like me, if we don't have that in common, then, then I'm not so sure I want the gospel to advance to them. But you see, the Bible, what we're seeing here week after week after week, is that the Bible has a far broader vision than you and I will ever do. A, a, a radical vision for this new community that God is building through Jesus Christ. So think to yourself right now, what type of person, what actual person, what group of people would you least like to see in church? Here's just a few examples if you're struggling to come up with one. This may or may not apply to you, this is incredibly general. Maybe you wouldn't like to see too many Catholics turning up. Maybe you would really struggle with people who had just been out on the LGBT march yesterday in Belfast and then turn up to our church. Maybe you would struggle with people who are on benefits and don't have a job. Maybe you would not be particularly happy to see people from a certain country rocking up at your church. A certain ethnic group, perhaps. Maybe for you, you, you wouldn't like to see too many rich people, too many posh people, too many educated people. Perhaps it's more personal than that. Maybe it's a certain person that you would not want to see in church, ever. Plenty of other churches, send them there, Lord. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a co-worker. Maybe a neighbor. Do not want to see that person in church. Hopefully by now you've got someone or something or some group of people in your mind. What I'm going to do now is, is apply the gospel of grace to your heart and mind. I'm going to read Peter's words again. He's referring about Gentiles in general, but when you hear these words, I want you to think of that person, people, or, or type of person that you've just thought of. God made a choice among you that by my mouth, this person, people, should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, he will bear witness to them. He will give them the Holy Spirit just as he did to you. He will make no distinction between those people and us. He has cleansed their hearts by faith. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will be. Folks, this is the gospel of grace. A person who enters the favour of God, who claims the benefits of the faith, who inherits the promises of Scripture, who receives pardon for their sins, who is granted eternal and abundant life in Jesus. They get that. We get that. We all receive that. When we hear the word and believe, when we rest and receive on Christ alone and nothing else. That is what grace is, folks. That is the gospel. That's the nature of grace. And it's so freeing when you really understand it. It's exhausting trying to prove yourself, trying to maintain your cultural barriers, trying to get into God's good books. The gospel of grace is so freeing. It's so empowering. It's the great leveller. There is no little people in God's kingdom. Everyone with a purpose. Everyone with a gift. Everyone with a unique role to play because they are all uniquely loved and cherished by God. It's freeing, it's empower, empowering, and it's so radical. The gospel of grace stretches deeper down into your soul than anything that you will ever know or experience. But it's so broad that it 
traverses entire cultures and societies and countries of people. So to hell with our requirements and our additions. Jesus, as they say, plus something equals nothing. You start adding stuff to him, then he's not there. Whereas the arithmetic of the kingdom is this, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And here's the nature of the gospel of grace. It is the grace of God just simply received by the empty hands of faith and nothing else. That's how you get God. That's how you receive Jesus. Isn't that old hymn? Nothing of my own I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. So let's not add any further requirements to outsiders coming in. Let's not do that. To hell with our additions. The problem of the gospel of grace, the nature of the gospel of grace. And let's think finally as we wrap up the application of the gospel of grace. What do they do with this? They've, they've nailed down to the gospel. But how does it work out in real life? So James, they call him James the Great, says, uh, he sort of sums up, like he's the chairman. You know, he sums up in verses 14 through 17. And he, he sort of, after all this debate and dialogue, probably happened over a number of days or even longer, as these things tend to be, um, he sums up. And he says, look, we've heard from, from, from Barnabas and Paul. We've, we've heard from uh, uh, Peter, otherwise known as Simeon. And uh, you know what? The Hebrew scriptures agree. Those scriptures that we say we believe and take to our hearts, even the prophets agree with what we're hearing and saying and believing right here. And he goes on to quote from Amos chapter 9. I didn't put it on your sheets because there's no space. But anyway, you can, you can look it up. Anyway, in conclusion, he says this in verse 19. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Grace, that's it. Don't lay any extra stuff on them. But then it gets a bit strange because he doesn't stop there. He carries on in verse 20. He says, but we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. That just sounds a bit odd at the very least, does it not? Because we've just been talking about the gospel of grace. We've just been affirming that. Everybody's been saying faith alone, Christ alone, you can be saved, yes. But then it seems to be that James is going back on himself saying, and do this, and do this, and don't do this, and it will, all will be well. What is going on here? Is this just a massive contradiction in Scripture? Is this not what we're just saying, Jesus plus something equals nothing? How is this, how is this related to salvation by grace? Let's just be clear. Verse 19, James said, we don't want to be a trouble. We don't want to be a burden. We don't want our, our laws and our, our traditions to be a burden to outsiders who turn to Jesus. That is clear. We don't want to add stuff to it. But here's the thing, folks, and this is how we understand what, what he's getting at in verse 20 and 21. Turning to Jesus, trusting him, putting your faith in him, converting, whatever you want to call it, happens to real people. Happens to people in, in society, people who live lives with other people, people with jobs and families who live in, in social networks. It happens to people who are part of culture. So therefore, when you receive Christ by faith, when you're transformed by his saving love, uh, you're not converted in a vacuum. You don't just sit, unfortunately, some people would love this, but you don't just sit in a little Christian bubble, protected, safe and secure and waiting uh, for heaven. You are secure, by the way, but uh, not, not in this way. Um, and here particularly, therefore, uh, people from uh, a pagan Gentile culture are, are talking about joining with those from a Jewish background. And so the question is, how can the two 
exist together, kind of like oil and water on one level. They just don't, don't mix. So what's going on? Well, uh, verse 20 shows, uh, you know, abstaining from stuff polluted by idols and sexual immorality and all that. Uh, these are classically understood as pagan activities that were considered to be utterly vile and abhorrent to Jews. They might sound a bit odd to our ears, a bit arbitrary, you know, uh, don't, don't, don't eat anything that's been strangled or from blood. Um, sexual immorality, by the way, is one of those things that is constantly upheld as something we should avoid as Christians in the New Testament. Uh, but the other bits there just seem to be um, about Jewish religion and Jewish law and all that sort of stuff. But the point is this. Jewish Christians will find it immensely difficult to do fellowship with Gentile Christians as long as you keep eating stuff sacrificed to idols. As long as you keep eating unclean foods and unclean animals, as long as you, um, uh, you know, eat stuff with the blood still in it, they will find it incredibly difficult to, to do fellowship with you, to do life together. They would struggle with that. And so what James is saying here is that, that you're being asked to ob, uh, abstain from these things, not in order that you might obtain salvation, but in order to model your salvation. It's grace and then it's gratitude. It's not the other way around. It's grace and then you respond to it. It's not be good to receive grace. It's the other way around. So what we're seeing here is that the Gentile Christians, to whom these things don't really make a lot of difference to them, uh, the dietary stuff anyway, uh, they are to model unity. They are to model self-sacrifice. They are to model unity with the Jewish Christians in the church. Don't forget, the gospel of grace is freeing, it's empowering, it's radical. It brings together Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female. The traditional divides are healed by the gospel. But it doesn't mean those distinctions fail to exist. It just means that when you receive the gospel of grace, you will willingly lay down your life for other people. You will willingly consider their interests and their sensitivities and their distinctives above your own so that you can model the gospel of grace. And that's why he says in verse 21, there's, there's believers in, you know, there's, there's, there's Jews in every city. Therefore, we have to watch how we live among them, is what he's saying. See, gospel freedom is not simply freedom to live for yourself. You were, you were doing that already before Jesus came along. And it probably wasn't working so well for you. That is not freedom according to God. Gospel freedom is freedom to live for God and freedom to live for other people. It's being free from a life of putting yourself first. That's what gospel freedom is. It sounds bad, doesn't it, for, for, for modern day people to, to not love themselves and not be full of self-esteem. That's what we're told all the time. And those things are good in and of themselves. But in Jesus, in the gospel, we see Jesus laid aside his rights, his powers and his privileges in order to serve us. He, he gave up his, his, his majesty for a time in order to go to the cross for our good and for our benefit. And so when we receive Christ, when we, when we trust the gospel, when we uh, you know, are transformed deeply, that will affect the way that we respond to others who believe and look and sound different to us. To put it in the words of one writer, it's not that you will think less of yourself, but you'll think of yourself less. That's what happens when you come to Jesus. That's what happens when you receive grace. Your own values and priorities and they're still important, no one's saying they're not, but they just come under those of those around you when you realize how much God loves you, how much he values you, what he has done to win you to himself. So this is what James is getting at right here in verses 20 and 21 as we, as we tie up here right now. 
in the interest of gospel unity, we place Christ centrally in our community and we abstain from practices that will undermine that unity because we value others above ourselves. That's what grace is. So practically, how might that work out for us? Let's, let's return back to our vegan friend again. Say your vegan friend comes to faith in Christ. Don't invite your vegan friend round for a kebab. They, they may not thank you for it and that will put an obstacle between you and them. Because you love your vegan friend and because Christ has died for you, prepare some lovely vegan food or go to a lovely vegan restaurant. Maybe they'll change their views on food one day, but that's not the point. Put down all of your rights and privileges to serve others. Maybe it's someone from a fundamentalist background who joins our church. Be prepared not to sit and drink alcohol in front of them if that brings them offence. I'm not saying alcohol is necessarily right or wrong here. I'm just saying don't put that in the way. Don't make that an obstacle to unity with someone else who otherwise loves Jesus and knows Jesus. You can think of many other uh, practical and ethical things perhaps. But the point is this. Because of the gospel of grace, we put others first. And so when the good news of this resolution from this council came back to the people in Antioch, you don't have it on your sheets, but it says in verse 31, when they read it, they, they wrote this letter, you see, and, and the church read it out loud, and it said they rejoiced because of its encouragement. They rejoiced because the gospel of grace was affirmed. It was made clear. There's no second-class believers, and all could participate in the grace of God in Jesus. That is something to stoke our joy and to strengthen us and encourage us. So folks, as we receive the gospel, as we trust in Christ, let us put aside our rights and responsibilities for the favour of those around us to the glory of God. We're going to sew things up. We're going to pray together. The guys are going to come up and join us now as we respond uh, in a few moments to uh, this teaching, to the scripture. Um, and what I want to do is just uh, lead you in prayer. In fact, why don't, let's all stand up together because sometimes this just helps us to focus a little bit. Let's stand up together. Advancing the gospel is about the embodied proclamation of the gospel of grace. That's what we've just been saying. You are living proof of the gospel. And I realize that uh, maybe based on some of the things we've said here, uh, there might be uh, some issues that you need to allow and, and ask and seek the Holy Spirit to hit home in your hearts right now. Um, you may need to repent because you have, even though you believe in Jesus, you've been putting yourself first and you've been restricting the gospel of grace at work in your lives and in others too. So maybe you need to repent. Pray for that in a minute. Maybe you need a reminder of your status that you are indeed loved and delighted upon by God, that you are his son or your, his daughter. And you've believed lies about you and, and maybe you have come to uh, believe that your sin still characterizes you even though you say you believe in Jesus. And so we're going to pray, if that's you, we're going to pray for a reminder of your status in, in Christ. Uh, maybe you need uh, another, another element, maybe you need freedom. Uh, you need freedom from overworking, from trying to prove God, uh, you get your way into God's good books. So we're going to ask for freedom uh, from that. And th you know, finally, uh, empowering. We've seen how the gospel empowers people. Uh, maybe you feel just like you're a little person with nothing to contribute. That is not the case in God's kingdom. No little people, everyone with a place. So we pray for the Holy Spirit to empower you with his gifts and his resources.